reason, one tiny reason for me writing these books, David, is I do want Christians to own their faith yeah. in the public square. Yeah. You just enter into a different plane of existence. I mean, uh, one reviewer said, I can't say you're dead if you haven't read Marilyn Robinson, but I can't say you're fully alive. Don't get me started on the travesty of the Father Brown series. You know, a shocking theological travesty. Well, welcome back to the Ask Podcast. Uh, hi, Greg. We are discussing culture again, so I hope you're in hi, a cultural David. mood. <laughs> Absolutely. Whenever I hear of politics, I reach for my revolver, so culture is much better. Okay, and of course, you're from the city of culture, Melbourne. As someone who's lived in... Sydney and Melbourne both for a long period. Um, you find just the same range of folks in both cities, really. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Melbourne doesn't have the harbour, but it, it does lots of other things well. Um, I, I think the Australians flatter themselves that there's some great mystical difference between Sydney and Melbourne, whereas from, from three feet out, you couldn't tell them apart, I would say. There's a sense in which we've got the Opera House, and I'd love to do a whole discussion on that at some other point. Um, because we're discussing culture, and I know what we're going to discuss today, and it's interesting in your book as well, we, there isn't a great deal about music or art, and I thought I'd want to just mention those at the beginning, because both of these have a phenomenal Christ influence, you know, in many, many areas, don't they? They do, they do. So I should uh, put you up against my publisher, uh, David, <laughs> because I had proposed a chapter or at least a section of a chapter on um, Christianity and music. So not really looking to the great sacred music, you know, uh, uh, the um, you know the, the famous masses by the great composers or Gregorian chant or anything like that. But uh, or or Jesus, you know, Jesus joy of Jesus rising or, or what have you. Mm -hmm. But looking at popular contemporary music. Um, and I ended up writing quite a lot about the Beatles song, um, Let It Be, which I think is, is absolutely uh, inspired by the visit of the Archangel Gabriel to Mary, uh, let it be done to me according to your word, and so on. And Paul McCartney, Liverpool, Liverpool Catholic, all this was rattling around in his head. And he's a very, very shrewd, brilliant, brilliant musical composer, and he knew exactly what he was doing. Um, there's a wonderful spiritual dimension all the way through John Denver's music. And in a way, it's it's a sign of how popular culture is somehow, again, abandoning Christ, that uh, uh, 40 or 50 years ago, Christian references were everywhere in popular music. Uh, they're still in country and Western music. They're less so now in mainstream rock and uh, and pop. Although there are wonderful songs everywhere. Lou Reed... All kinds of people, of course, Van Morrison. Um, uh, bit, he's a bit mad, Van Morrison, but the best people are, of course. Um, and the publisher said to me, just to finish that thought, the publisher said to me, look, half those song lyrics are just because words rhyme or words scan or something, and you're putting more interpretive weight on them than they can bear. And in any event, he talked me out of it. Well, I think he was wrong, to be honest, because I think it fits your theme perfectly, reflects things. You know, um, I, I, w I was at a Van Morrison concert and it was unbelievable because he treats his audience with total disdain. So he, he, he's basically signed up to do a 50-minute set and then the previous night he couldn't be bothered and just walked off. 
And that night he did it. And then he did a 50 minute encore of one song, Gloria, in which he drank pints through it, had all kinds of <laughs> solos. It was utterly outstanding. It was, it was totally well, brilliant. Ben Morrison has sung about angels. He sung about, um, uh, you know, there there is a beautiful spiritual quality to um, there'd be days like these, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I I love I love church music, but if at my funeral they played on the bright side of the road, I, I think I'd be smiling if I was capable of smiling from wherever I might be at that time. Well, it wouldn't be a Calvinist funeral anyway. <laughs> the, do you know? Um, this is a true story about Van Morrison, by the way. He had his he had a boat. And he used to go up to the Western Isles, sail around the Western Isles in his yacht. And he would go into the Stornoway Free Church, Gaelic psalm singing, which he absolutely loved. And Well, I can believe it. Yeah. That other great song of his, Whenever God Shines His Light Light on, on Me. me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is, I find this music utterly beautiful. He reminds me, this is a very strange association, but I always think of this Scottish writer, James Kelman, when I hear mm -hmm. Van Morrison's music. There just seems to be some similar sensibility in them really demotic and uh kind of just with an integrity of their own uh as i say ben morrison's a bit mad so is james kelman but uh you know nothing wrong with that well listen and the other thing is you know when we're talking about music you see i agree with you about music but i would suggest that music that doesn't include spiritual themes or biblical themes is in fact very 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 shallow and tinselly um, and I would say that great rock music, for example, like you get Led Zeppelin and, and, and others, and I'm reflecting probably my age, but, you know, they're not overtly Christian, but they contain questions and themes and so on that the Bible deals with. By the way, please forgive that knocking. I have no idea, but one of my neighbors is banging. So this is just real life as it is. And whoever's <laughs> listening to this, you can call Absolutely. Well, David, just a final reflection on that. Um, in the book I do write about the great Martin Luther King speech, I Have a Dream and so on, and one of the great speeches in the history of, of human oratory, I think, and um, absolutely full of biblical cadence and biblical mm -hmm. reference. I've been to the mountaintop, I've seen the promised land and uh, and so on. You, this, this only a black pastor steeped in the Bible could have delivered that speech and only an audience which knew something of the Bible could have appreciated that speech. The same is true of, of many of Abraham Lincoln's speeches. But the audience today, and then just a few short years later, we had Let It Be from the Beatles. Now, mm -hmm. Paul McCartney wrote that about his mother, Mary, but he was very happy for it to be interpreted as being about the mother of Jesus, Mary. And it's so full of... Um, of lines from the New Testament, still, you know, in times of darkness, Mother Mary comes to me, still a light shines, you know, it's almost a, a, an exact, there is a light that shines in the darkness straight from, uh, straight from John's gospel. Mm -hmm. But um, you wonder, would an audience even have the echo of such a reference today? I mean, if, if you've never ever heard that, those phrases at all, you might still be moved by them because they're inherently powerful, but they wouldn't have that wonderful echo that they had. For, for artists then, they could rely on the audience having a little smattering of biblical background. I think that's much harder today. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I, I agree, it is. But but I also think that this is part of the, you, you talk about smuggling Christ into culture. I think you can get biblical ideas and phrases in, and people may not understand or grasp those, but it, they, that may cause them to question. So I would often do stuff like that. I mean, I, I'm sorry, I don't want to carry on with the music, but just to mention one other thing, you know, um, I was at a concert of Leonard Cohen at Edinburgh Castle with my sister. And at one point I turned to her, there's 10,000 other people, and I said, Fiona, I think you and I and a handful of others are the only people who really get this concert. And she started laughing and she said, why? And I said, well, 50% of his lyrics about sex, and I assume most people here get that. But the, <laughs> other, the other 50% are explicitly biblical. <laughs> you know, right. and, and they wouldn't, you know, they just wouldn't get them. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, that is true. By the way, on the, on the art side of it, because I think the art's another one. I mean, I, I think for some people, art galleries are their cathedrals now. Um, and I, I do think the power of art, the the creator, the creative and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I do think that in, in my own tribe, the Dutch Calvinists got it right. The rest of us, the Scots got it wrong. But the, the, the Dutch Calvinists got it absolutely right. And you've got this tremendous art. But I do remember going to the New York Met... Um, Metropolitan Art Gallery, and they then, I think they still do, they had it arranged according to centuries. And what amazed me was the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries were absolutely crammed with people. The 20th century, you could have played five-a-side football. Well, and that's right. I the, mean, difference, the difference was just simply, you went around all these other ones, there was loads of religious themes. And I, does well, that not say something? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, a few years ago, in London, I went to the Tate Gallery to look at an exhibition of Turner and the Masters, mm -hmm. which was magnificent. Mm -hmm. And then I went to the Tate Modern Gallery and I really <laughs> wanted to get a psychiatric compensation voucher or something. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was everything. I mean, one gallery celebrated truth and beauty, which is where art should always seek. Art <laughs> should always seek truth and beauty. And one gallery celebrated ugliness and deformity and uh, and almost you'd say vileness was its moral vision. And um, and you think uh, how culture's gone into a weird. So I'm not an, I'm not a preacher of cultural despair. But you think our culture has gone down a weird cul-de-sac of um, futility in much of modern art. Yeah, there's a wonderful writer called Francis Schaeffer who I'd highly recommend. Who goes into this a great deal. But he had a friend called Hans Ruckmacher who became the Surgeon General for, for the United States and he's written this fabulous book, best book I've ever read on art called Modern Art and the Death of a Culture. And he was quite for modern art, but he said basically without the biblical foundations, it just falls in on itself. So, by the way, I, I do need to show you this. It shows you, I, I do listen to you, Greg. Can you see this? Ah, oh, yeah, Tolkien's, uh, Tolkien. the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien. Oh, that's wonderful. Arrived today, wonderful. so... Fabulous. Yeah, I didn't even know it was still in print. That's amazing. Yeah. So that's a modern paperback edition. That's great. You'll enjoy that so much. If you're a big Lord of the Rings fan, yeah. you'll like all that. But if not, you can just read it through the index for C.S. Lewis and marriage and so on. And uh, I'll, No, no, I'll read the whole thing. I love I love letters. Now, in, in, your, in the chapter, sorry, I'm, I'm just going to show this to folks. This book, this is what we are talking about, Christians. You mention, I think... The brothers Karamazov, you know, basically any of Dostoevsky's, uh, Anna Karina, you know, Tolstoy, but I would put this up with this in terms of its its impact upon me emotionally. And 
partly it's just because of the sheer beauty of its writing, and that's Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. So mm. can you tell us just something about how you got into Marilyn Robinson? Because I, I, I adore her, to be honest. Well, uh, my journey to Marilyn, yeah, I, I think she is the premier Christian novelist of the 21st century. Um, and in fact, I think she's one of the great novelists of the 21st century altogether. Um, I, my route to her was a bit roundabout. Um, I, I greatly admire an American critic called Joseph Epstein, and I saw him claim once in reviewing the letters of Willa Cather that Willa Cather was the most successful American novelist. And at that point, I hadn't heard of Willa Cather, and I thought, well, this is a bit of a weird claim. So I looked up Willa Cather's books and started to read them. And at first, I couldn't understand what the fuss was about because they didn't seem to have plot, witty dialogue and, and so forth, all the stuff that I like, conflict in novels. Mm -hmm. And then I found there was something just majestic and sweeping and grand and transcendent in Willa Cather, especially her overtly Christian novels. And then I think Marilyn Robinson is a direct descendant of Willa Cather. Mm -hmm. They're separated by 100 years. They're both Midwestern Christian uh, female novelists who don't write in really the Anglo-Saxon tradition. They write in a much more European tradition. Mm -hmm. So they are novels of uh, character and novels of ideas and novels of reflection. So there is a story, of course, the novel, as E.M. Forster said, must always tell a story. But in the, in the book Gilead, which I think is Marilyn Robinson's greatest novel, but there, there's a four novel sequence around Gilead mm -hmm. and the others, Lila, Home and Jack, are also majestic novels, each one of them you know, it's almost like, uh, you know, any one of them would be the best novel you've ever read, except that you've read the others in the same in the same sequence of four. And Gilead, you couldn't imagine something less likely to succeed. Gilead is the story of a 77-year-old congregational minister, John Ames, in uh, the Midwest, who has a heart condition, his life is coming to an end. He married late in life. Uh, and has a seven-year-old son, and he writes an account of his life and thoughts for his son. And the reflection is historical, it's theological, there are long contemplative passages on what heaven will be like, and uh, there are celebrations of the beauty of the earth, there are question, questioning sections about, um, you know, can predestination really really be consistent with free will and God's graciousness and so forth. There is also the story of his father and his grandfather. His father was a kind of a pacifist um, minister. His grandfather was a militant abolitionist who took up arms in the Civil War to free African-Americans. So there's that fabulous historical dialogue. But really, uh, you just enter into a different plane of existence. I mean, uh, one reviewer said, I can't say you're dead if you haven't read well. Um, Marilyn Robinson, but I can't say you're fully alive. You know, it reminds me, Oberon War once remarked, I can't take anyone's troubles seriously if they haven't tried to lighten their mood by reading P.G. Wodehouse. Well, I almost I almost agree with that reviewer about Marilyn Robinson. There, there is a, she doesn't go in for the purple passage, very much like Willa Cather. The power of the writing is in the pattern of the writing rather than the single magnificent sentence. And it is transcendently moving and um, and profound. I found myself taking notes all the time, which you don't generally do in a novel. And that certainly didn't, you know, delay the, the enjoyment of the novel for me. But it obviously affected you in a somewhat similar fashion. 
Yeah, I think when I got into it, um, I have to say this, you know, I'm, I have a female brain, <laughs> and I can multitask, so I read and I do various things. But I found with Gilead, at home, Lila as well, um, that I just wanted to stop. I didn't do anything else because mm. it, it really was, it, it, it showed me the magnificence of words. And also, I'll tell you something that's really interesting, just what you just said there. I thought, this is insane. How can we have this wonderful writer writing about predestination and free will and who's a big fan of Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan, you know, who's a, a, a liberal progressive in the old American style of that, you know, friend yes. of Obama's, you know, how does this? And again, I just thought this is Christ in culture again. This is Christ getting in and absolutely her, her being drawn by that and and writing honestly about it in the same way as Hilary Mantel when she writes the magnificent series about um, Cromwell and, and what astounded me was Mantel's not as I don't think she's a Christian and what got me about Mantel's was the same thing that she wrote honestly tried to understand what um, Christians believed both Catholic and Protestant at that time and and, and I do think that's a wonderful thing well, both um, Willa Cather and Marilyn Robinson uh, are, are, or were Christian. Yeah. I mean, Willa Cather obviously long since dead. Willa Cather began as a Baptist and became an Episcopalian, but wrote the best books about the Catholic priesthood that I've ever read, especially uh, Death Comes for the Archbishop. Marilyn Robinson um, is a Calvinist, mm -hmm. and uh, when you say someone is a Calvinist, you don't normally think of them as a, as a liberal Democrat best friend of Barack Obama. But... <laughs> You know, human beings constantly defy categories, yeah. and uh, uh, it's um, you're quite right to say that she writes honestly. But it, it's more than that, isn't it? Her books function as a narrative. You're very interested in what John Ames thinks and what happens in his life and what happens with his marriage to Lila and so on. But you're also profoundly absorbed in his own meditation, uh, which is a deeply human meditation in the sense that it's not an academic consideration of heaven, but it's a consideration of heaven informed by his life, you know, by his 55 years or whatever as a congregational minister. Um, his, uh, you know, there's a beautiful passage. There's a bloke in it that he doesn't like very much, Jack, until right at the end he comes to, and he struggles all through the novel to feel loving towards Jack because it's his Christian duty to love Jack. And yet Jack Jack is a rascal. Jack is a bad guy. Jack has abused women and been an alcoholic and so on. And Ames is very worried that Jack might inveigle himself into Lila's life after Ames is dead. And he's, he's scared of Jack and he really doesn't like him. And he wrestles in his own mind with this. I can't feel this way towards Jack. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not open to me as a Christian. And he, at one point he says, you know, if Jack flung me down the stairs of my own house before I hit the bottom, my theology could work out how to forgive him. But if he injured you, and he's writing to his seven-year-old son, he says, I don't think my theology would be equal to the task. Mm -hmm. And I just remember that passage in the book. And anyone who's ever had a kid, you know, you just know exactly uh, what Ames is talking about. Mm -hmm. Do you know, you've, you've written something here. Guy, let me, just, let me just do this one and see what you, uh, just to comment on your own writing. And now uh, my guy has started with a drill, so <laughs> that's just oh, unbelievable. Oh, dear. Never mind. It's a failure of modern Christianity that we almost never talk of heaven. 
Christianity believes in the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. They are all indispensable parts of the human condition and the Christian message. Every human being will face them. Now, what I find interesting, you, you mention how in churches, you tell a story of a writer, I can't remember who it was, who was asked to give a talk in a church, in a Catholic church, and, and he spoke about basically death and heaven and hell because he, he, he hadn't heard about it in church for a long time. And I thought that's fascinating because I think in, in terms of where we are as human beings, it's so important. And it's a shame that in the church, we've forgotten that core aspect. Well, I do believe that, David, and I'm thrilled that you lied on that passage. Yeah, the writer was um, Frank Sheed, who published, who founded the publishing firm Sheed and Ward, which published a lot of wonderful Christian apologetic books. And he was he was um, asked to preach a sermon, and uh, he chose to preach on heaven because he'd never in his life heard a sermon on heaven. You know, he'd been attending church for, you know, 60 years or something. He'd never, a bit like Billy Graham wrote a book about angels because he'd never heard a pastor talk about uh, talk about angels and um, heaven uh, is a mystery but I am concerned that our popular culture is desacralizing itself and losing a sense of the sacred and the transcendent and the metaphysical and within my own tradition the first Vatican Council in the 18th uh, the 18th in the 19th century the 1870s whenever it was is very um, expansive and detailed in its consideration of the afterlife. It, it really, it's a bit speculative, but it's trying to work out what heaven is going to be like. By the time you get to the Second Vatican Council, which is generally a good thing, the Second Vatican Council, I'm not an anti-Vatican Council man, but nonetheless, there's a feeling that this kind of concern with the sacred and the transcendent and the supernatural, it's a bit kind of... Uh, you know, we should be more kumbaya, where are our folk hymns and let's sit around and, uh, you know, wear our sandals and um, cheese cloth and mm -hmm. there's an element of, you know, that's all good stuff and so on, but let's not forget the transcendent truths. And so one paradox of heaven that's always perplexed me, but it's not a problem to my faith because I don't mind not knowing the answer to things, is we're going to rise in the body and we're going to live forever in the body. Mm -hmm. And yet change and decay seem to be of the very essence of humanity. So this is a mystery. This is a transcendent mystery. John Ames reflects, or Marilyn Robinson through John Ames and Gilead reflects, we know for sure that heaven is not going to be a disappointment. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I don't believe that we will lose our regard for this world either. Mm -hmm. uh, now, we all believe that we're headed to heaven. We believe in heaven. It's a reality. Uh, Jesus said to the good thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus is not a liar. So this is a core Christian belief. And yet Marilyn Robinson's novel, Gilead, is the first sustained kind of contemplation of heaven that, that I've read in, in Christian literature, really. So that does strike me as novel. Well, it is. Um, although C.S. Lewis is... Um the last battle in the Narnia series is basically a, a, a kind of thing of heaven, and his science fiction trilogy, the second one, is is uh, you know it, be, it, it begins to go there. Um, it's fascinating. I apologise, I haven't read those, but I will now. I yeah. will. There was a fascinating piece, and we we haven't said much about television, but do you know the Inspector Morse series? Oh, very well. Yeah, indeed, yeah. very well. Yeah. So the one where they come to Australia, you know, and they have the the thing on the. Yeah. You've got to be on the Opera House with Morse, of course, and then they're in the outback. 
And I just remember this discussion where Lewis says to Morse, do you believe in hell? They've had a particularly horrific murder to look at. And, and Morse says, I wish I did. I wish I did. I wish there was a hell. And I remember that struck me enormously the first time I saw it, because it's actually a very common perception uh, amongst, well, I would say, normal people in some ways. Just a, just a very brief footnote on Morse. In my last book, God is Good For You, I read at some length about Morse. I'm very devoted to Morse. Morse is a good example of what the popular culture did to Christianity. The early Morse episodes are tremendously theological, uh, theologically literate. Uh, Morse at one point quotes one of my favourite poets, uh, Francis Thompson, mm -hmm. the hound of heaven. You know, uh, I, he chased me down the labyrinthine ways of my own days. I, I did hear his his foot and so on. You know, the idea of God chasing chasing you through your life. Morse uh, quotes Pascal's wager in the early in the early episodes. I think the early ones were in about the 1980s. By the end of the series, the writers have become anti-Christian. So Morse, who initially sings in a church choir, is obviously deeply theologically literate mm -hmm. at the start. By the end, he goes into a Gothic church, presumably an Anglican one, and says, I always hate, I've always hated the type of religion that this church represents. Mm -hmm. And Morse is almost a perfect laboratory example of the popular culture, even as late as the 1980s, feeling a certain affection for Christianity. But by the end of Morse, which I presume was the end of the 1990s or the beginning of the 2000s or something, feeling that it had to be reflexively dismissive, insulting and hostile mm -hmm. to Christianity. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, you know, I could go on at length about that. And, and, and I mean, don't get me started on the travesty of the Father Brown series, you know, mm -hmm. the shocking theological travesty G.K. Chesterton wrote a series about the most theologically orthodox priest in literature who becomes this kind of weird BBC, uh, you know, touchy-feely, religion isn't true, don't believe in miracles kind mm -hmm. of fruitcake uh, uh, under the Father Brown series. But, you know, that's a digression. When I used to go to civic functions when I was a kid or when I started in journalism, you'd often have grace. There'd be grace before meals. Um, people would make a reference to our Lord, you know, one nation under God or something like this. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a tremendous insult to do that. Now, I, I admire Scott Morrison. I'm not making any criticism of him. But it's as if Scott Morrison and the New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet, have established that you are allowed to be a church-going Christian and still occupy high office, but only if you promise never, ever to mention it in public. Christianity is a suspicious activity which should be conducted in private amongst consenting adults and must have no role in the public square. I mean, this is an area where I think the Americans are better than we are. A lot of things wrong with American public culture, including religious elements of American public culture. But every American president would finish a speech Thank you and God bless America. Well, that, that's a wonderful thing. People regard it as a cliche, but why would you be embarrassed if if your whole life is devoted to Christian belief to say God bless Australia? You're not even nominating specifically the Christian God. You know, it can be any sense yeah. of a monotheistic God. Yeah. But if I promise you, if Scott Morrison had said at the end of the Australia Day address, God bless Australia, 
there would have been howls of abuse and derision and so forth. And one reason, one tiny reason for me writing these books, David, is I do want Christians to own their faith yep. in the public square, not yep. to impose it on anybody, but just to own it. Yeah. By the way, if I was, um, and I'm sure he's, I'm expecting a phone call after after this from his, if I was advising him for the election, I would tell him the story of the Chinese estate agent where we first rented, where I'm recording just now, and we just got talking, uh, and she said, this is a great country. She said, I voted for Scott Morrison, and I said, oh, why did you do that? And she said, well, I'm not religious, but he's a religious man, and I just, you know, and I just thought, do you know, we, we've allowed what I call, I would call it the Twitterati, but I would say a, a particular section of society to so dominate and and fundamentally they're so intolerant. But I do think that, you, you know, if people spoke up so, you know, someone like Marilyn Robinson, I, I mean, I know people disparage Tolkien now, but uh, I, I do think if people were more straightforward in just saying, yeah, this is what I believe. I'm not, I don't impose that on anyone else because my faith actually doesn't allow me to do that. You know, mm. um, you're not going to get, I mean, the, the, in Scotland, the Tartan Taliban or, you know, you're not, you know, if, if you're a Christian, you know, oh, you must be, you know, fanatically. I mean, I did hear, I can't remember, may, may even, I think it was Kevin Rudd. I couldn't believe it. It's just because he was against uh, having a go at Morrison, but talking about Pentecostals by definition being far right. I'm going, yeah, you know, yeah. You have no, you have no I, idea. I yeah, I, I don't want to become political, but I was very disappointed, Kevin, in, in uh, saying that. But look, you raise a really critical point, David, which I'd love to come in on. Have you noticed how many books and TV series and movies are based on the idea of a state takeover by fundamentalist Christians? Yeah. When Christians, <laughs> fundamentalist, liberal or nominal or whatever, have never been weaker in Western societies in all history. Mm -hmm. So you have that um, Canadian writer who wrote The, the Handmaid's Tale yeah. about, so here we are, society is collapsing, you know, there are terrible extremist movements of the left and the right. Uh, there's a worldwide Islamist movement, you know, the communist dictatorship in China is on, on the march. Never in modern history in the West has institutional Christianity been weaker, and yet, our screens are full of diabolical fantasies that a cabal of powerful Christians are about to impose a theocracy on the innocent public. There's some new series on, on the BBC, um, The Return or something, which, which again, you know, thinks that there's this terrible danger of fundamentalist Christians. You know, the Oxford Union a few years ago wouldn't let the evangelical Union um, appear in orientation week because they wanted to preserve a safe space for students. So the Evangelical Union, of course, is famous for roughing up students, I guess, you know, for coming out and, and beating up students who don't wear a fish in their lapel badge or something. It just shows the culture has gone completely crackers, in my view. Yeah, and that's maybe actually that's maybe a good place for us to, to finish because we're going to. I wasn't intending doing a third one on culture, but we are. We, we have to come back to Buchan and and Koch and, and others. Um, the the Canadian writer is Margaret Atwood, The Handmaid's that's Tale. Right. Uh, I wrote a review of it, and I, I I prophesied at the time, and it's a prophecy that's come true, that Margaret Atwood may well be right in terms of some of the authoritarian authoritarian tendencies within society, but it will come. She's more likely to be cancelled by her own side 
than to be cancelled by, you know, any kind of, you know, wacko Confederate, you know, American right-wing takeover. You know, that was. And the the irony of that is just simply that that's what's happened. I mean, she was attacked and cancelled for uh, a couple of things, but particularly on the, on the whole trans issue. But it is very interesting that there's a sense in which you've you've written about this this input of Christ into the culture, and we've mentioned numerous things out of that. And you talk music, art, literature, and so on. And you know, I'd almost want to do a whole other one on the Antichrist thing. But the Antichrist thing is the sense of demonizing. So you know, people. How is it associated in people's minds that if you're a Catholic priest, you're likely to be a pedophile? Now, it's less than 5%. It's about the same statistics for any other group. But that's in popular imagery. And, and the, if we look at the, the way that Christians are portrayed in soap operas, or as, as I say, you know, like in, in Atwood's Handwood's Handmaid's Tale, there is all that stuff that comes up. And I do think the only way that we do counter that is providing a, a not a political solution, but I would say a, a Christian narrative. We need more Tolkien's. We need more C.S. Lewis's. We need more Marilyn Robinson's, and we need more seeping through of of culture. In that, I mean, ironically, some of the most conservative people socially I know are people who you know are African Americans, who when they bring their gospel choirs over, everyone absolutely adores them, and then they sing. So I'll just tell you one story, and then I'll let you have something to say to finish. Um, we had a choir brought over. It wasn't African American. It was from Africa. And they came to the Scottish Parliament, and they were wonderful, with Toto Children's Choir. And the guy who's leading them told me that the parliamentary staff said to them, you know, you should stand up and sing whatever you want, but just don't mention Jesus or any religious stuff. <laughs> and the kids looked and said, we haven't got anything else. And so they stood up and did it anyway. And I just thought, how sad, you know, yeah. how sad that we are so culturally insecure that they they want to exclude what is in people's hearts, you know, and I, I just it, it's yeah you're right it's gone mad in that way. Anyway, I'm going to let you have the last word. Well, David, you know, I, you you should be very disturbed by how furiously we are in agreement. You know, I think this is going to be bad for your career and might count My career's finished at the pearly <laughs> gates. You know, and uh, but um, you know, to cite a couple of other examples, there's this American TV series called Riverdale based on the Archie Andrews comics. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a bit, uh, it's a bit gothic, but it has an order of nuns who kidnap and torture young girls. Now, a lot of Catholic priests misbehaved and I'm ashamed of them. I don't think there's any record anywhere of nuns doing this kind of thing. And, you know, the dear nuns who, who you know, the early AIDS sufferers at St. Vincent's Hospital, the nuns stuck by them when everyone was scared of them. They lifted the drinks to their mouths as they died. They held their hands to give them courage at mm -hmm. the end. Mm -hmm. And yet, what's the portrayal of a nun in Riverdale? A sadistic sexual torturer. In, in the Australian series, Doctor Doctor, there was a Christian character, a fundamentalist Protestant, and she was a nice person, so that was a great thing, but of course she was a nut and her ideas were ridiculous and she was regarded as the kook on, on the series. And of course, there was an episode glorifying the joys of euthanasia. You know, every time euthanasia is presented in a uh, in a movie or a TV series, it's regarded as a wonderful, heroic, fabulous uh, thing. And 
you're right. The only the best way to counter it is by just producing our own product, which is fantastically good. We haven't talked about that wonderful series where I didn't write about in my book called The Chosen, you know, just yeah. which Christians put together with crowdsourced money and so on. Marilyn Robinson's book, Gilead, I haven't met a single person who's been disappointed by reading that book, including yeah. people who, who have no religious belief whatsoever. And that book won the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. Now, the idea of the Pulitzer Prize going to an overtly Christian book with a long contemplation of the nature of heaven as a deep reality and with a character, John Ames, who is not a saint, but who is a decent Protestant, Congregationalist, Orthodox Christian minister. Mirabile dictu. This is, this is a miracle. But what we need, therefore, is simply, you know, to tell the story because the truth in the end uh, should triumph. We, we have this enormous advantage that we're trying to tell the truth, even if we tell it very imperfectly. But, uh, David, I just can't tell you how much fun it is to talk about these issues with you. And obviously your neighbour is enthralled by this discussion because the bangs and everything else have stopped. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to send them a copy. But, you know, you're talking about writing and I'm not I'm not trying to, you know, praise you too much. But I do think that your own writing is really helpful in terms of presenting, you know, the, the Christian cause. I mean, I know people who won't listen to me. Um, oh, you're some kind of religious nut who'll listen to you. And then I know people, by the way, who are extremely confused because you're Catholic, you know, and aren't, aren't we supposed to hate each other, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And somebody actually said to me, I think you're just faking it. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think the two of you, are, but we're not. It's, it's, honestly, I find this incredibly um, stimulating and helpful, and I hope those who are watching do as well. So we'll, we'll catch up again in a fortnight. Is that Thanks okay? so much, David. Fantastic to talk to you. Thanks so much.